Welcome to EquiManagement's podcast, Disease Du Jour, where each podcast will delve into the research and current best practices for a variety of equine health problems with industry experts. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of EquiManagement. Today's guest is Dr. Scott Weiss, DVM, DVSC, a diplomate in the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and a professor at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College. His research interests include emerging infectious diseases, Weath produces a blog that is now focused on the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find it at wormsandgermsblog.com. Thank you, Dr. Weath, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about veterinary biosecurity during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hey, thanks for having me. First, could you just explain to veterinarians and vet techs, what do they need to know and understand about the human coronavirus? Well, I think we've all had a pretty good crash course in coronaviruses over the last few weeks. So I think we understand a lot of the basics about it. But the quickie version is this is a zoonotic virus that came out of animals in China, probably originated in bats, maybe went through another mammal, and then made it into people. And it's well adapted to humans. And it's being transmitted either purely or predominantly human-to-human. It's probably almost all human-to-human transmission. We still haven't answered all the questions about animals, but this is a human issue. And sometimes in veterinary medicine, we say, okay, it's a human disease. We don't really need to worry about it. But because it's such a profound human disease and because of what we're doing to control it, there are a lot of issues that move beyond the animal that can interfere with how we treat animals. And what precautions do ambulatory veterinarians and staff and who are making farm calls, what what do they need to be cautious of? And also the same for vets and staff in equine hospitals. Well, the biggest thing we're doing with this virus to control it in people is social distancing. And it doesn't matter if it's a grocery store or in a hospital or a farm or a vet clinic, it's the same general concept. And what we're trying to do is reduce the number of human-to-human contacts and reduce the closeness of those contacts. And it's not isolation, it's doing as much as we can and trying to balance off you know, being socially responsible, being practical, being protective. And how we do that is really variable because the risks vary and what we can do vary. So the, the take home is the risk is from human contact. You know, there may be some small animal components, there's probably basically nothing to worry about from horses directly. We're worried about contact with people. And we need to think about how we interact with people in our veterinary visits. So on a farm, obviously the issues are we're going to multiple farms, there may be multiple people there, and we need to figure out how to minimize the number of contacts we have. And one of the biggest things that we can do is to make sure we're only having contact with healthy people. So one of the things we do in our college is calling people before their appointment, just confirming, okay, is anyone there sick with this virus? Is anyone being self-isolated? Uh, does anyone have respiratory disease? And if the answer to, is no to all of those, then the risk is low. It's not zero because some people can have asymptomatic infections or be shedding a little bit before they start to get sick. But if we can screen out those high-risk situations, it means that the smaller number of human-to-human contacts that we have to have can be lower risk. So whether it's calling before you go to the farm or confirming when you get there, okay, everyone here is healthy, no one's been exposed, no one's told to be self-isolating, okay, well, we're good to continue on from there. And then at that point, it's thinking about how we interact. And this virus is spread by droplets, so, in contact, so talking really close to someone. So if we maintain that, you know, six foot, two meter separation, the risk of me getting this virus from someone, even if they're infected on the farm, is pretty low. 
so we can maintain distance, we minimize the number of contacts, we try not to pass things back and forth that we're both touching, we try to avoid touching common surfaces, then the risk can be pretty low. And you had an interesting blog two days ago talking about the dog in Hong Kong that had been found tested positive but was thought was just a transient but now was found to have antibodies to human coronavirus. So can the human coronavirus affect animals and what does that mean to veterinarians? Yeah, that's a big question for us and we just don't know. It's a new virus, right? We've only known this virus for a little over three months and we know a lot uh, but it's impressive what we don't know and a lot of that pertains to animals. So we relate some back to SARS because SARS is a very close to related virus. And there were some animal species that were susceptible to SARS, and cats and ferrets are the big concern. And this virus is close enough that the receptor that the virus uses is probably the same as the SARS virus. And it's predicted that a certain few species like um, cats and ferrets and maybe pigs might be susceptible. Horses haven't come up on any list. Um, it's not really clear whether they've been looked at in terms of their, you know, the virus genome, how it would interact with horse cells. But since they haven't mentioned horses as being a risk species, the risk is probably low. So we're really focused on dogs because we have a lot of them. We have a lot of contact with them. Cats because they're, at least theoretically and based on SARS, a greater chance of infection in ferrets because they like to pick up our respiratory viruses. So we have two dogs in Hong Kong that are positive. Um, and the first one is a fairly convincing positive that had positive PCR results over the course of a week and seroconverted, so it, its body was responding to the virus. The second dog is a more recent one, so testing is ongoing. Um, but that's two positive dogs out of about, I think it was 17 they've tested, somewhere in that neighborhood. So it, it's not a lot, but considering there have been a lot of animals tested, we need to be, you know, at least thinking about it, be cautious about it. So I think from the horse standpoint, the risk is pretty low, but we still want to have that same message is, you know, if you're sick, you want to stay away from other people. And if you're sick, you want to stay away from other animals. It's a lot better just to not have to worry about a potential problem than saying, okay, this person has COVID and they've been coughing on their horse. Now what do I do with this horse? The risk is probably really low, but I'd rather not have to think about it. So if we can keep people away from their animals, if they're sick, then we don't have to worry about that. Which brings up the question that I know several veterinarians have raised in the States. Can the human coronavirus be present on the hair coat of animals? Yeah, it's another one we don't know. Um, it's an envelope virus, and as most people know about envelope viruses, they're pretty wussy. They don't survive very well in the environment. They're easy to kill with disinfectants. If we look at some experimental work that's been done on this virus, it can survive for a while. Like any virus, we're going to survive for a short time. Whether it's going to die in a few minutes, a few hours, or a few days is really the question. So this virus could survive from hours to two to three days on surfaces, depending on the surface. So stainless steel and plastic, it was able to survive two to three days. Our horses aren't made of that, and most materials we use aren't just made of that. So that, it's hard to say what that means. We have enough concern that, okay, if someone had coughed on you know, a horse's face and then someone touched that face 30 seconds later, okay, that's a plausible risk of transmission, just like a doorknob or any other surface. Presumably the virus isn't going to live overly long on an animal's hair coat, whether that means you know 15 minutes or means a few hours, probably not more than a day. But again, what we want to do is keep sick people away from animals because you know if, if they're not touching an animal or coughing on an animal, then we don't need to worry about it. So it's something we're paying attention to trying to keep sick people away, but we're not really freaking out about it. We're just trying to make sure that we use some basic measures. So if we've got an animal that's been handled by someone 
that has this virus, then paying good attention to just routine infection control, you know, whether it's a lab coat or a set of coveralls over top of our normal clothing as an extra barrier we rub against the animal, wearing gloves, washing our hands after taking the gloves off. The risk is probably really low, but there's some really basic things that we can do to reduce the risk. And that's one of the big things we're trying to figure out. In the absence of knowing what the risk is, if there are things that we can do that are practical, they're inexpensive, they're easy to do, and they don't hamper what we do, it makes complete sense to bring them in, even though they might not be necessary. Today's Disease to Shore podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the makers of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Well, veterinarians, whether they like it or not, are often seen as health leaders in the community. Horse owners will ask them questions that really have nothing to do with the animals, like what can I do because I have employees that have to come clean stalls or we have horses coming in and out of the breeding sheds. And I know the Kentucky State Veterinarian's Office has put out some useful information on that, but do you have any recommendations for horse farms that veterinarians can share or even for clinics and and helping them you know maintain besides the person to person and sanitizing and hand washing that might help them out yeah a lot of it's common sense and we've put some materials on our website some guidance we've made it's been focused on small animal clinics because that's where more of the concern is but a lot of those apply equally well and it's just basic concepts of social distancing, and that's the big thing. Social distancing, general hygiene, and infection control. And we can do effective social distancing on a farm or in a vet clinic and still function. It just need to think about some thought as something, what are all the potential human-human contact points and how do we reduce them? So at the, the barn level, if you've got a barn where you have a bunch of different owners, well, it doesn't mean we need to lock it down and keep everyone away, but we need to think about how people are coming in. What are the points? What are the places that people tend to congregate? What are the places where lots of hands go? So how do we limit whether it's the number of people that are there at the same time, where they can go, places they hang out, places, things they have to do, and common touch surfaces? Now, we can bring in a lot of practical measures to be able to maintain a reasonable semblance of normal activity while still being responsible and trying to prevent transmission of this virus. I know in Florida, uh, because of the shortage of personal protective equipment and, and hand, sanita hand sanitizer and, and some other uh, types of supplies, that veterinarians have been donating some of these supplies to human hospitals. In the UK, they've requested ventilators from veterinary hospitals to use in human hospitals. So what can be done during this shortage of personal protective equipment and hand sanitizer? It's a good question because we're going through a lot of supplies in human healthcare, and the more barriers we use with our patients, then we go through our own supplies quickly as well. And one of the things we have to be aware of on the vet side, we're lower on the priority list, obviously. As these things get restocked, they're going to human healthcare first, not to us, which makes complete sense. So when we're thinking about personal protective equipment, we need to think about kind of, as we use it, three different things. One is conservation. Uh, one is extended use, so using them longer than we would use them normally. Another is reuse. And then an additional one would be alternatives, so things such as cloth masks instead of 
are regular masks that maybe aren't quite as effective, but they're better than nothing. So when it comes to the human healthcare need, really it's an understanding of what's going on in your area. Uh, production is ramping up quite dramatically of all of these pieces of equipment and supplies. So I think we need to keep an eye on what's happening in the hospitals in our area. If there's a need such as, you know, if they're running out and they have none, then we want to make sure they're supplied. If they're running low, we want to keep an eye on what's going on so we can provide it if they need it. But what we don't want to do is, you know, give them all our supplies if they're not needed because we're not going to get restocked in a while. So good communication to make sure that, you know, we've got their backs if they're running out, but we're also making sure that if they don't need our supplies, uh, we keep a handle on them because we may not get restocked for a while. But we can do some basic things to make our supplies stretch such that we have them for a longer period of time or that it's easier to donate them to the human side. And that's part of that's conservation. So only using things when we need to. So if it's surgery, how many people really need to be involved with gloves and gowns? It's extended use of some things that we might, you know, only use once and throw away. There's some things we can use safely and effectively and repeatedly. Uh, and thinking about some alternative approaches. So we've written something, and it's on our website again, about how to do all those things with personal protective equipment. But it's really important for every clinic just to keep stock of what they have and realize when you're running low, because that might mean not doing certain procedures because you don't want to burn through your supplies that you really need for something that you have to maintain. Having an idea how, how long we can go with our current supplies, talking to our suppliers about when we're going to get new things, and maybe changing our practices for a short period of time. And it may only be a bit of a pause, right? We're trying to see how much production comes online. So if people are you know, stopping elective procedures that require personal protective equipment, even for a couple weeks, that lets us get more information. So if we slow down or stop doing electives for two weeks, and then at that point, we hear from suppliers, okay, things will be good in a month, or things will be good next week, because they're producing a lot, then we can start getting back to normal. In a couple of weeks, they say, no, you're not going to get anything until June or July, which is what we've been told earlier. Then, okay, we really need to keep stretching it out, trying to get that balance between you know, being socially responsible, making sure there are items for humans, making sure we can deliver the care that's needed on an emergency basis so that we're not putting ourselves at risk or our animals at risk by not being able to do emergency things, but also trying to get as much normalcy as we can. And again, when you say on our website, which website do you mean? Sure, that's the Worms and Germs blog that you mentioned earlier. Right, so it's so wormsandgermsblog.com. Uh, okay. There are various posts there, and within those posts, there are links to some guidance documents. That's good. And one of the most recent posts, you were working with a local distiller, which has happened across the North America, actually, and trying to ramp up the production of hand sanitizer from the distillers. You were looking for some glycerol. Did you find what you needed, or are you still in need? Well, we're still working on that. We've got some of the ingredients, and I think it's exactly like you said. A lot of people are stepping up and doing things they never thought they'd be doing a couple months ago. And this is a distillery that obviously has lots of alcohol and decided to repurpose it for hand sanitizers. So they were producing just 70% alcohol, which is really good for killing virus and bacteria and various things, but it's really hard on your hands. So we got them started with the World Health Organization recipe that's really basic. It's alcohol and hydrogen peroxide and glycerol. So it's really a little more effective and a lot easier on your hands. And we've been trying to keep up with the peroxide and the glycerol. So for farms and, and clinics and ambulatory vets that are running low, um, you might be a bit creative. You might not be able to find it from a supplier or from a store, but you might find a distillery or something that's producing it or it can send you some. There are some ways to make it with 
ethanol or with isopropyl alcohol or rubbing alcohol. Uh, peroxide is easy to get in most areas. Glycerol in small volumes isn't that hard to get. So if we have to, we can make our own. Ideally, we're buying stuff that's made uh, with a good recipe. But as you run out, we have to be creative. Yeah, I know several vet clinics who have said that they are making their own hand sanitizer so that they're not pulling it off from what the public or the hospitals need. And they have all of the supplies needed. So that's that's a really good tip for uh, for the veterinary uh, hospitals. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, convey to veterinarians during this critical time with COVID-19? Well, I think there are a few general messages. Like one is it's going to get better. Like this will pass eventually. It's not going to pass in a week or two. This is, we're in for a bit of a long haul here. What we're hoping is that we can start, you know, inching back to normal over time. And we may see things that go up and down, right? One of the big things that's being done to try to manage this disease is to slow it down. Everyone's heard flatten the curve, right? And the concept is basically we want to keep the number of really sick people below the number of ventilators and ICU beds. So ultimately, the goal isn't necessarily to make get fewer people sick. We'd like to have that. But we want to stretch it out such that if you're sick, you can get health care. Or if you get, you're sick for some other reason, the hospitals aren't full, so you can get health care. So social distancing is really important. I get the hassle. It can be a, a big impact on people's lives. There's major economic impacts. Um, but hopefully it's a short-term thing to help control this because otherwise if we don't socially distance well, we can run into a lot of problems. So kind of the both messages there is it's important that we actually do this stuff, even though it seems like a problem and it may not be an issue in your area right now. There's some areas that are getting hit very hard by this. But the other side of that is, you know, we're doing this because it will get better eventually. And we're trying to make it better quicker by being responsible and socially distancing. Well, we greatly appreciate you taking the time. I know this is an extremely busy time for you, and we really thank you for helping us out with this. And we want to remind our listeners to keep up with uh, Dr. Weiss and his posts on wormsandgermsblog.com. You probably want to check in there every day. There's some great information he's putting out. So thank you, Dr. Weiss, for joining us today on Equimanagement's Disease Du Jour. And thank you for listening to our podcast. You can hear previous and future podcasts of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Pippa. We hope you'll join us for a future edition of Disease Du Jour. 